Well, join me in the book of Matthew today, chapter 13, if you want to find that. We're going to start in verse 1, and I'm excited that we're starting a brand new series today. We've gotten through the book of Ephesians recently, and we're going to launch into this seven-week series where we're going to look at a very unique form of teaching that Christ employed the last year of his earthly ministry. So Matthew 13 is where we're going to be today. When I was a boy... Back in the early 1980s, uh, back in McAllister, Oklahoma, okay, this is a long time ago, I attended Will Rogers Elementary in McAllister there, and we had a music class that our, uh, my, my fellow students and I went to, where the teacher would teach us different musical concepts, and uh, one day a week, very special day, we would have requests, we would get to request different popular children's songs that we could sing together in that class, and one of the popular songs that, that all of the little kids would sing together was Puff the Magic Dragon. All right, you know the, the old Peter, Paul, and Mary song. Uh, I think that was a popular choice for my generation when we were that young because of a slate of, of animated specials that were on network TV featuring said dragon, Puff, who lived by the sea, who frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Hanalee. You might know the song, all right? And he befriended this, this boy named uh, Jackie Paper, I think was the name of the kid. And it was this nice little song that we enjoyed singing as children. Then I grew up. And I went to a movie with my, uh, with my wife, and we went and saw a film called Meet the Parents. You know where I'm going with this? There's a scene in that movie. Of course, that movie, Ben Stiller plays this guy. He's dating this girl, and he goes home with her to meet her parents, and her father is played by Robert De Niro. And, and he's the most intimidating guy you can imagine. He's an ex-CIA interrogator, okay? So I related to uh, Stiller's character, not because my father-in-law is, is that kind of an intimidating personality, but every, every guy that's dating a girl uh, is nervous about meeting the parents. And so he has a very awkward time getting to know her dad, and they are sharing the most awkward car ride ever in this one particular scene. And he's just trying to find some kind of commonality. Clearly, her dad doesn't like him whatsoever. And so he's just, he's just, you're rooting for him to kind of break through. Well, De Niro reaches over, turns on the stereo, and lo and behold, Peter, Paul, and Mary crank up with Puff the Magic Dragon. And he says, do you like, uh, you like Peter, Paul, and Mary? And Ben Stiller's just looking for something, anything to connect. And he says, yes, yes, I do. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan. And then he starts to loosen up as they kind of enjoy this light little song. And he says, you know, who would have thought that the, that the song isn't really about a dragon? And in that moment, as a moviegoer, I went, what? And my reaction was exactly like Robert De Niro's character's reaction. He looks at him and says, what, what, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, you know, you know uh, uh, some, some people think that, that you know, to, to, to puff the magic dragon is, is, to, is to, you know, you know smoke a mar marijuana cigarette. You know, it's this awkward explanation. And I'm listening, I'm going, how did I miss this? You know, I'm thinking, I, I never picked up on that. And sure enough, after the movie, I went home, I looked it up, and I saw that there's this theory out there that that puff means to inhale and that dragon means to, you know, take a drag. 
and that he lives by the C, and that's the letter C for cannabis. <laughs> and he befriends this boy, Jackie Paper, as in rolling, <laughs> you know? And so I'm listening to all of this, and, and my childhood's just going up in smoke. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you gotta be kidding me with this. And from that moment on, I was rooting for Robert De Niro's character. You know, I'm like, yeah, man, I wouldn't let that pothead near your daughter. No way. Now, it should be said that I did find out the author of that song says, in no way does this song have anything to do with drug use. But the point is this. You can think you know what a song, a story, a book, a poem are all about, and you could have interpreted it wrong. And that is also true of certain passages of Scripture. And some passages of Scripture are incredibly misunderstood. And there is no uh, type of literature in the Bible that could be more misunderstood than parables. Parables are some of the most misinterpreted passages of all Scripture. And sometimes we get our interpretation from a passage of Scripture uh, in, in soundbite fashion. We might get it from a radio program or from, a, from a, uh, a small group or a Bible study that we've attended. Or we, we might listen to some kind of a podcast. And some guy is on there, some trendy speaker, and they invest a couple of minutes in this. And they give you, you know, the basic gist of it. And some pastors get up in the, in the pulpit on Sunday and they, they've already decided what they want to say. And once they've decided what it is that they want to talk about, they go looking for some passage to kind of support their basic idea that they're presenting to you. And if somebody wants to talk about, you know, being kind, meeting people's needs, uh, they'll look around and they'll find the parable of the Good Samaritan, perhaps, and they'll say, well, here, here, here's this story, this is what we should be, and people hear it and they go, ah, that'll preach, but it's a reach, because the meaning may not be quite as simple as we first assume. Okay, And over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at some parables. We're going to look at some parables that deal with the kingdom. Now, the kingdom is a future coming kingdom. It is a literal kingdom. How do you believe that Jesus is coming back? You glad about that? Won't it be great when he comes back and he establishes his kingdom? How many of you agree with me that the earth needs to be under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ? That would make for a much different experience, wouldn't it? Well, that is going to happen one day. But in the meantime, we have a glimpse of that coming kingdom. And so in these parables, Jesus is going to speak of the kingdom. These are kingdom stories. Kingdom stories. And we're going to see Jesus share his very first kingdom story. Look at verse 1 of Matthew 13. This is the setting. It says, that same day. This is a very, very busy day. In the ministry of Jesus. Jesus went out of the house and sat down beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got in a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. So this is the setting. Here's Jesus. He's by the sea. Like Puff. And uh, it's not Hanalee. It's Galilee. Amen. And so he's there by the sea. And the, there's a crowd there. Everywhere Jesus went there were crowds. Now, this crowd was so big that it, it necessitated some action on his part. He gets in a boat. And this boat, I assume it's in the water. I don't think he's sitting in a boat on the dry land. And the crowd is so large that he's got to get in this boat. I don't know if you've ever been in a large crowd listening to one speaker outdoors. 
It's impossible. So they're on the shore. He's in the boat facing up toward them. Some scholars have said there must have been some acoustical advantage to this. Maybe the sound would bounce off the water, go up, up on that shore as they extended up that hill. Either way, in verse 3 it says, And he told them many things in parables. In parables, okay? Now, it's important for you to understand that this is the very first time Jesus has ever spoken in parables. And from this moment forward, for the remainder of his ministry, Jesus will speak exclusively in public in this form, in parables. He will never speak in public in any other way. Now, what is a parable? Well, in your notes, a parable is a story that uses earthly examples to communicate a heavenly truth. All right, if you grew up in church and I asked you what's a parable, you might say something just like that. You might say it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that is true. That's very close to what I've just shared with you. All right? In the Greek, the words used here are para and balo. Parabalo. Okay? Balo means throw. Para means alongside. And so he is throwing alongside something heavenly, something eternal. He is throwing some earthly examples, something familiar from everyday life so as to, to represent uh, the unfamiliar, to represent the eternal. And he is doing this to communicate spiritual truth, all right? So it is a story that uses earthly examples to communicate a heavenly truth, all right? Now that is true, and that is an accurate way to describe a parable. However, a parable is much more than that, as we shall see today. But the truth that it describes is not... It's not multiple truths, you understand. This is one truth. This is not something where it's intended for, for us to listen to it and all derive our own version of the truth from a parable. That's not the way that the Bible works. Sometimes we sit in a, in a small group or a Bible study and we read a passage and then we go around the group and we're like, well, now what does this mean to you? And we all take turns. We're like, well, here's what it means to me. And we just share what it means. And then by the time we're done, we get 15 versions of, of a truth from the same passage. Is that how the Bible is meant to be read? Well, no. And it's, it's perfectly fine for us to hear different perspectives from different people. Just so you know, there's only one truth. There's only one way to interpret the Word of God. Only one correct interpretation to each parable. So why is it, if that is true, if there's only one truth, why does Christ speak in such a symbolic way. Why is he speaking in stories? Why not just come out and say what you mean, Jesus? Why are you telling us some stories here? And that's what we're going to dive into in just a moment. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time together today, Lord. And as we open the Word of God, every time we do so, we ask the following. We ask that you would illuminate this text to us. We ask that you, by the Spirit that indwells us, would awaken our hearts and our minds to the proper understanding of what it is that we are reading. And help us to know how Christ is communicating in this passage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, a major misconception about parables is that Christ used these stories to, to, uh, to convey to us the importance of relying on narratives as we teach the Bible. That really the Bible is just a collection of stories. It's not to be seen as doctrine. It's to be seen as, as story. It's just one big story. And there are people that say that. 
in church circles. In fact, there is a movement afoot that says uh, that we should avoid uh, uh, definitive doctrinal truth and we should just relate stories from Scripture. And we should leave the interpretation up to the folks, up to the people who are listening. And, and that we accompany uh, uh, the reading of his word with illustrations and, and, and everything is, is allegorical and uh, uh, just a narrative uh, uh, format filled with fantasy, filled with imagery, and it's just up to whatever people think it means. That's, that it's just up to their own interpretation. Problem is, that's not the reason that Jesus used parables. Okay, that's not the reason at all. Now, I love to tell stories. I shared a story at the beginning of this sermon. I will share more before the end of this sermon, okay? But, but when I do, it's meant as a tool to help illustrate a doctrinal truth. I do not supplant doctrine with some nebulous fable and expect it to hit home for people. There's got to be an anchor. It's got to be pinned down to some doctrinal truth. Regardless, that is not at all why Jesus is telling these stories, He's not even making an illustration for the masses to dumb it down for them, as it were. He's dealing with some lazy souls in this crowd. I had a professor in college. Here's another story. (laughs) I had a professor. He would lecture. And as he would lecture, he would... uh, he would say something cryptic, and he wouldn't, give an illustra- he wouldn't give an explanation as to what it was that he meant. And they'd say, okay, well, let's move on. And then people in the room would just go, what? What now? For example, he was lecturing one time. He said, you know, throughout church history, uh, there are those who have believed that it is necessary uh, to be baptized in order to obtain eternal life. And of course, they're right. Let's move on. And then people in the room are like, wait, what? What? Did did he say that it's necessary to be baptized to have eternal life? And he would just finish the class, finish the lecture. And then after class was over, he'd go over, collect his things, and a mob of students would surround him and say, hey, what did you mean by that? And then the rest of us would pack up our stuff and we'd leave. (laughs) All right? But see, he didn't unveil the truth of that statement because he wanted to see who was seeking the answer. And whoever sought the answer, he would then share the explanation. And and, and in case you were wondering, the explanation of what he said was that baptism equals eternal life in that it is spirit baptism. He wasn't talking about water baptism. See, water baptism, when we dunk people, that's an outward picture of the inward transformation. Because when you are born again, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Is that necessary for salvation? Absolutely. You must be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it happens at the moment of conversion. And that's what he meant. Okay, let's move on. (laughs) So Jesus here is going to share this parable with this crowd. Now, we're not going to read that parable right now. I'm going to skip ahead and I'll come back to it later. But here's what happens. I want you to look at verse 10. After he shares this parable, it says, Then the disciples came and said to him... And by the disciples, we don't mean simply the twelve. They were certainly there, but there were others. In Mark's gospel, you see this parable uh, told there in parallel fashion. And uh, these followers include the twelve and some others that have been faithful followers of Christ. They come to him and they ask him the question. They say, why do you speak to them in parables? Well, that's the same question we want to know. Why are you talking in stories, Jesus? Why don't you just say what you mean? And he answers verse 11. He says... To you, 
to you, and I would underline that. That's a very important phrase. To you. Who is the you there? That's the truth seekers. That's the faithful. Okay? See, he's got the same reason that my old professor had. To the seeker. To those who want to learn, he says. It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. To you, it's been given to know. And so in your notes, Jesus had a twofold purpose with parables. Number one, Jesus used parables to reveal truth to the unresponsive. That's his first reason. I'm teaching parables, he says, to interpret it to a group of people who want to learn. You are seeking truth. I'm not going to waste this knowledge. I'm not going to throw my pearls before swine. To those who stuck with me on one, two, and three, I'm going to unpack it on four, five, and six. And Jesus knows who those people are. Who those people are. He knows who the faithful are. He knows who the seekers are. He knows also who the slackers are. He knows the hearts of those in that crowd. Do you think that Jesus knew as he looked at that crowd which of those people were there for the right reasons and which were not? He knew that there were some looky-loos there. He knew that there were people who wanted to see some miracles, and that's it. There were people who just wanted what was in it for them. They were not looking to obey. They were not looking for wisdom. They were not looking for truth. They had a preconceived idea of what Messiah was, and it all benefited them personally. And so Scripture tells us that some things in the Bible are spiritually discerned. And knowing that, Jesus is going to communicate in ways that he knows his followers are going to respond to. But in addition to that, he goes on to say, but to them, it has not been given. All right, we got a contrast now. To you and to them. To you it has been given. To them it has not been given. That sounds different. In verse 12, he says, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have in abundance. All right, so Peter, uh, uh, James, John, Zacchaeus, Mary Magdalene, all you faithful who have followed me, who have sought me, I'm going to give you insight. You're coming to me. You want to learn. I'm going to lay this on you. I'm going to give you a PhD education right here. But to them, he says, but from the one who has not In other words, those who have not repented, those who have not followed, those who have only argued with him. He says, even what he has will be taken away. Even what he has will be taken away. In other words, he's going to turn the light off on the unbelieving. The offer is not going to be on the table anymore. And so while number one, Jesus uses parables to reveal truth to the responsive, number two in your notes, Jesus used parables to obscure truth from the unresponsive. Wow. Sounds kind of harsh. Something, something not sit right with you about that? What's the context here? The context is Israel. For those Israelites who have rejected their Messiah and will continue to reject the Messiah. The offer of this kingdom is no longer going to be on the table, at least for now. They, they didn't want Messiah as he was. They only wanted him as they saw him to be. And the truth is going to be turned off because they've not received it. And he says in verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. This is a division that is happening in Israel. This is God's chosen people. He made a covenant with them. 
And through David, he's made a covenant. He said, I'm going to send a descendant of David who's going to sit on that throne. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to reign and rule forever. And they have rejected. They have rejected that Messiah because he's standing before them in the flesh. And they're not there with the right heart. They're not there with the right reasons. And he knows that. And so he is turning off the light. And he is hiding the truth from them. He's revealing it to the faithful, to the seeker, but he's hiding it from the unbeliever who has rejected him. Interesting. Interesting. And he's doing this to fulfill prophecy. He says in verse 14, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull with their ears. They can barely hear and their eyes have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and, and turn, and I would heal them. If they would have but turned, he would heal them. But they have not, and they will not. And he knows this because as we read in John's Gospel after he met with Nicodemus, Christ knows what's in the heart of a man. And because of this knowledge, there's a sub-point in your notes, and it's this. Christ's use of parables is a judgment. It's a judgment. See, this is, not, this is not a device that he's using to put the cookies on the bottom shelf for the unbeliever. Not the point of a parable. There's a movement in Christian circles that, 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 that says that every service, every event, every group that we offer as, a, as the church has to be done with the unchurched in mind. I've seen this philosophy firsthand. I've, I've been right up close to it in ministries. In fact, there's a movement out there right now that has adopted a parable. The parable of the 99 sheep and the one lost sheep. You know, that he leaves the 99. The shepherd goes to find the one lost sheep. And they say, we got to adopt that. You see, the 99 are the church. And the one lost sheep is the world, is the unchurched. And so everything we do has to be about the one. we gotta, we got to put everything in the context that the lost would understand. Every service, every lesson, every song, every event, everything, we got to make it palatable to the unchurched. And I get the motivation. I really, truly do. I understand the heart behind that. We want them to hear and understand the gospel. But that is, to use a parable to make that case is an odd choice. Given that parables are used by Christ to keep the truth from the unbelieving. And reveal it to those who are truly his. In verse 16 he says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He says, I have talked about this thing forever. If you go back to the Old Testament, you're going to see this truth spoken of there. But they missed it. They missed it all along. And now I'm going to reveal it. And I'm not going to reveal it to the elites and the affluent and the mighty and the scholars. They're too proud. They're too set in their ways. They've rejected it. They could have had it. They didn't want it. And so now you want it. And I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to fishermen and harlots and tax collectors. Because you're seeking. You're seeking. And I'm going to give you this mystery. It's a mystery. Is the church in the Old Testament? Well, not by name. And it's not represented by the likes of Israel, okay? 
But it's, it's there. Let me ask you, is Jesus in the Old Testament? He is. How about the fact that he would die? Is that in the Old Testament? Yes. How about the fact that his death would be a substitution for sin? Yes. How about the fact that he would rise again? Yes. That's all there. Did they get it? No. They didn't understand at all what Messiah was going to be. And so Messiah is going to open it up to non-Jews. He's going to open it up to all the Gentiles in the world as well. We saw this in our study of Ephesians. Is the church pictured in the Old Testament? Uh, in a roundabout way, let me show you in Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. This is God speaking to Israel. He says, They have made me jealous by what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. He's saying, just like you were not a people until I called Abraham and made a people, now I'm going to raise up a people that did not previously exist. And historically, they're going to be called the church. And so it will, be, it will be a new body. And it will be indicative of a coming kingdom. And so all of these concepts in the Old Testament were not understood. They were a mystery. A mystery is something that you cannot know unless it is revealed to you. Why was it a mystery, all of this, to Israel? Because they were selective in what they heard. You ever been accused of that? You ever been told by a spouse or a parent, you only hear what you want to hear? I think we all have. I think we all have. It's human nature. Can we be selective about which parts of the Bible we hang on to and quote to one another? Oh, yeah. Yeah. God is love. You know, judge not lest you be judged. We know all those by heart. We say them. And then God's like, and? Right? We only say what we want to say. We only remember what we want to remember. And so these parables are quite prophetic about what is to come, as was the Old Testament. But now it's being spoken in such a way that those who get it are going to get it, and those who aren't and have rejected it are going to be blinded to it in the ministry of Christ. And he has made this decision that this is the, how, the way that he's going to teach from now on, from now on, from here to the end. And so, in your notes, the parable of the sower, what we're about to look at in detail, is about the proclamation of the kingdom in the church age, right? We are not the kingdom. We are a glimpse of the kingdom. You and I, as Christians, are subjects of a coming kingdom, right? But the church is the picture of that kingdom. And so, we are living in this age, which is a finite, temporary age, and our job as subjects of that coming kingdom is to recruit future subjects for the coming kingdom that's our job and so in this parable we're going to see what that looks like because we're going to we're going to go out we're going to try to do some recruiting and we're going to see the different people who respond to that some are going to receive it some are going to reject it some are going to appear to receive it but are going to be phonies and this parable is going to tell us all of that so i've told you what a parable is i've told you what a parable is for now let's go back and let's look at this parable let's see how how Christ tells this story. Back in the middle of verse 3, he begins. He says, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But 
when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. That's the parable right there. And at the end of that, Christ closes it out by saying the following. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. We see that phrase in the book of Revelation when Christ addresses the seven churches through John. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear. What does that mean? It means if you can understand this, understand it. If you can get this, you need to get it because there's a job for you to do. There's an age about to commence and you have work to do. You have work to do. Okay? But only my sheep are going to know this. Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Okay? Those who are not his sheep, they don't recognize his voice. The sheep know. That doesn't mean that you're going to understand everything right away. How many of you, when you read the Bible, you understand it the first time, every time? Anybody? Anybody? No. Me neither. But do you want to know? Do you want to know? That's what a sheep does. A sheep follows the shepherd because they're seeking. They want to know. If they knew, they wouldn't need to follow. And so we follow our shepherd. And that's exactly what we saw happening in verse 10. These disciples, these faithful, they follow Jesus. They go, hey, 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 what, what's the deal with these parables? What are those all about? Can you explain that to us? And he responds to them. And he says in verse 18, Hear then the parable of the sower. He's going to explain it. He's going to do something that I wish he would do in every passage of Scripture. He's going to explain it. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice if we just had an explanation? Well, with this parable, you get one. You get one. And so in your notes, we're going to see the parable of the sower explained. Now, I'm going to go back and forth. I'm going to go back to the original parable in verse 3 and following, and I'm going to read it line by line, and then I'm going to give you from verse 18 and following Christ's explanation of each line. So how does this parable start? We read it in verse 3. It says, a sower went out to sow. Meaning what? Well, Jesus says in verse 19, he says, here it is, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom. Okay, this same parable is in Mark 4, and Christ's explanation of this line is in verse 14 of Mark 4. He says, the sower sows the word. What is the sower sowing? A seed. What is the seed? It's the word. So in your notes, the seed is the gospel. The seed is the gospel. When Christ tells this story, does he play a role in the story? Do you see Jesus in the story? Uh, not, no, not directly. We don't see Jesus physically because this is during the church age. Is, is Christ physically on the earth right now? He is not. He is not. Spiritually, uh, his, his spirit lives in our hearts, but physically he's not here. He's gone. So what is here in his place? There's a seed. There's a seed. And the seed is the gospel, you see. A seed is not the plant. A seed is not the fruit. What is a seed? A seed is a self-contained unit of life that will evidence its genus species. And so the gospel is the seed. The gospel is not Christ. But the gospel is the seed of Christ. And when that seed takes root in a person's heart, Christ will manifest 
in the inner being of that person. It's, but that seed has got to find receptive soil. It's got to find receptive soil. And if that ground receives that seed, then it's going to give life and fruit to that soil. And, and so that's what the seed is. It's the gospel. Okay? And who is it that sows this seed? A sower sows the seed. Originally, who is it that sows the seed of faith in our hearts? It's God, isn't it? It's God. He sows the seed. Now, can anybody else sow the seed? We got any sowers out here? I should hope so. In fact, we are called upon to do that. We got this thing called the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Can you make a disciple out of somebody who has never received the gospel? You cannot. They must receive the gospel. Who gets to tell, tell them the gospel? We do. That's why we're here. So we get to share the gospel. And by the way, you don't have to bring them to church so they hear the gospel. You get to share the gospel. All right? They, they might hear the gospel at church. They're going to hear it if they're here today. But you get to go out and sow the seeds. And so we can make that application right now. And as we do, some are going to reject, some are going to receive. And some are going to pretend to receive, but they're going to be posers. They're going to be outward professors, but they're not going to be inward possessors, right? And so now you're starting to understand why these parables are meant for a righteous audience. There is no application for sowing seeds for the world. They don't understand what that is. They're like, what are you talking about, sowing a seed? Sowing seeds of kindness? No, sowing the seeds of the gospel message. And so what is described in the rest of this parable are four types of of soil where that seed is sown. Look at verse 4. It says, And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. All right? So what you need to know is that in your notes, the four types of soil represent different hearts. Different kinds of hearts. And the receptivity of the different soils represents the receptivity of different hearts to the gospel. Jesus says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, all right, in verse 19, and does not understand it, what happens? The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And he says, this is what was sown along the path. This is what was sown along the path. So here is the first soil. Number one in your notes, the soil along the path represents a hardened heart. A hardened heart. You ever notice the soil along, or, you know, beside a road? Is that just stellar soil right there? Is that good soil for planting? Do we grow crops along the road? How about in the middle of the road? How about in the middle of a path? Okay, a path in Jesus' day was hard-packed soil. Why? Because that's for travel. You don't, you don't grow crops there. People walk on that. That's hard soil. What would happen if you scatter seed on the path? Is it going to penetrate? No, that's packed down. It's going to sit on the surface. Well, that's a smorgasbord for birds. They're going to come down. They're going to gobble that stuff up. All right? Now, these birds represent something. Who do they represent? He says the evil one. The evil one. Who's that? Satan. He comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So you got this soil. This is the unreceptive heart. They've heard the gospel, presumably repeatedly. And they've become bitter toward it. 
They've become calloused toward it. They're not having any of it. They could care less. They're closed-minded. And Jesus says, Satan comes along and takes whatever knowledge they do have. Just takes Now, you keep in mind, Satan doesn't do anything unless he's allowed by God to do it. So he is allowed to steal what revelation they've got. You say, wow, really? God just, God just allows that to happen? I want you to understand the context here. Jesus is coming off his busiest day in ministry. In the previous chapter, Matthew 12, same day, he heals a demon-possessed man. The Pharisees come along, and they attribute that miracle to Satan. They say, he's doing this by the power of Beelzebul. That's Satan, the prince of demons. It is by the prince of demons' power that this man casts out demons. And Jesus calls that out as blasphemy. And then he goes on, he says to them, he says, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. You don't get to blaspheme the Spirit. It will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. You ever heard of the unpardonable sin? Okay, it's not suicide. Okay, some Catholics teach that. That's not what it is, all right? The unpardonable sin comes out of this passage right here in Matthew 12. When Jesus curses these Pharisees for the sin of the blasphemy of the Spirit, they blaspheme the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean you say, oh, Spirit, darn you, right? No, you are, you are blaspheming the work of that you are attributing the work of Christ to the work of the devil. And the whole act is rooted in a heart that has completely and finally rejected the message of Christ. Does Jesus know what's in the heart of a man? He does. And so he looks at these Pharisees and he sees the, 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 the darkness, the blackness, the coldness, the callousness of their heart. He knows that they have rejected him and that they always would. And so he solidifies that. He says, let's just make it official. You are anathema. You are cursed. He judges them right then and there. He says, there will be no forgiveness for you now or ever because he knows you're never going to believe in me. You're never going to believe in me. Is that cruel? No, it's what they want. We have confirmed in Romans 1. This is the wrath of God. It's giving people what they want. Remember Romans 1? Although they knew the truth, they traded it for a lie. They exchanged truth for lies. And apparently there comes a time when in Romans 1, as we see, God says he's going to give them over to their basest desires, to the darkness of their heart. At some point, known but to God, you, you have rejected for the last time. And he says, that's it. That's it. Now, this does not mean that you get to write people off. Okay? You don't get to share the gospel with somebody and they don't respond. You go, all right, well, fine. I'm going to just give you over. You're going to burn in hell then. You don't get to do that. Because you're not God. God knows what's in a man's heart. We don't. God looks on the inside. We look on the outside. That's all we can see. Okay? As far as you're concerned, as, as long as that individual is drawing breath, there's still hope. You keep hitting them with the gospel till the day they die or you die or the Lord comes back. There's still hope. But God knows their hearts. Okay? So that's the first soil. Now we go back to the original telling of the parable. Here's the soil number two. Verse 5, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up 
because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. They withered away. They sprung up right away because it was shallow soil. Did you know that seeds germinate quicker in shallow soil? I didn't know that. I had to look it up. But they do. You know why? Because they get to the surface quicker. They don't have as far to go. You plant a seed too deep, it might not break the surface. Has too far to go. Might, might run out of food on the way up. Run out of nutrients. And so you plant it shallow, it's going to spring up quick. Because the surface is right there. But if there's no depth of soil, what, what can they not do? They can't develop a root system. Because if they spring up too quick and they've got no roots and the sun comes out, they're going to burn up. And that's what we see right here. Now, how does Jesus explain this? In verse 20, he says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And where tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And so this is number two in your notes. The rocky soil, this is a purely emotional heart. A purely emotional heart. They immediately receive it with joy. They hear the gospel. They receive it. Sometimes a person comes to a church service, a concert, some Christian event. They hear a message. They even appear to respond to that message. But it's a purely emotional response. Okay, they get all worked up, they cry, they might shout, they might sing at the top of their lungs, they might fall on their face. Now, is anything wrong with any of what I just described? No. I did all of that on the worship night on Friday. Are emotions good? Who gave us emotions? God did. They're a gift from God. Is it wrong for you to experience them? No. Are they to be the centerpiece of your faith? Absolutely not. Your faith cannot be built on emotionalism. It cannot be built on experience. If it is, what do you feel that you need to keep sustaining yourself? You need more repeated experiences. And it's never going to be enough. It's always got to be bigger and better. And that is not sustainable, especially when hardship comes, when persecution comes, when trials come, and you don't feel like being Christian. And you realize you got no root. You realize there's nothing there. It was pure emotion. It was experience. And what happens when you have a shallow faith? He says immediately he falls away. He falls away. Now he's not talking about losing your salvation. This is not describing a Christian who loses their salvation. I don't have time to get into Hebrews 6. We will eventually one day. We'll break that passage down about those who fall away. This is not a Christian. This is a cultural Christian, which is to say it's not a true Christian at all. This person was never saved. This person was never born again. They had an experience. They got emotional. Now, they heard the gospel. They understood the gospel. They got the basic facts of it. They can say amen on cue. They look the part. They know the right verses. They could sing all the words to Waymaker. But it's not enough. It's not real. They don't got any roots, you see. And so the next soil in the parable here is described. In verse 7, Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And so here we have this third soil 
The soil among the thorns. How does Christ explain this in verse 22? It says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but... Now you notice a pattern emerging here. It says that they hear the word, but... Okay? Meaning, it's clearly not enough just to hear the word. Nor is it enough to even understand the word. First guy heard the word, didn't understand it. These next two, uh, they hear the word... They understand the word, at least intellectually. They get the facts right, okay? And the rocky soil, that guy had an emotional, shallow response. This guy hears it. He gets the details right, but Jesus says, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So number three in your notes, this is the soil among thorns. It's, it represents a distracted heart, a distracted heart. This is the heart that's got too many things going on. Too many things going on. These thorns represent earthly concerns, uh, seductive desires, love of money, of things, relationships, status, fame. Jesus calls it deceitfulness. Now, is it wrong to have things? Is it wrong to have money? Some people get down on the rich, probably because they're jealous, right? They like to misquote the Bible. They say, well, money is the root of all evil. Well, that's not actually what it says. It says the love of money, right? You can have money. There's a lot of people who are wealthy that love Christ, that serve Christ. I think of Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament. It was, it was his tomb. He was a rich man. He had a tomb. Christ's body was laid in it, fulfilling prophecy, okay? He, he served the Lord. But you can't love money. To have money is not wrong. To love it, downright dangerous. Downright dangerous. You remember, uh, future to what we're reading today, Matthew 19, Christ is going to encounter a young man, the rich young ruler. He'll come to Jesus. He'll say, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Sounds very sincere. Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you. Keep the commandments. And he says, which ones? Isn't that just human nature? What's the bare minimum I got to do? And Jesus, you know, he's just, he's just kind of toying with him. He, he gives him, he doesn't even give him all ten commandments. He gives him the last six. You know, all the ones that deal with your fellow man. You know, don't steal, don't lie, don't sleep around, honor your father mother. You know, love your neighbor, all of that. And the guy's going, done, 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 done. Anything else? Anything I lack? He goes, yeah, one more thing. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. Now, what is Jesus saying? Is he saying that in order to have eternal life, we, we got to get rid of all of our possessions? we got to take a vow of poverty? No, that can't be what he's saying. Because if we're to give it all to the poor, well, they're already poor. So that means they've already got eternal life. What do we want to mess that up for them? No, he knows what's in this man's heart. He knows what sits on the throne of his heart. And as long as his wealth is on the throne of his heart, Jesus can never be on the throne. He's distracted. You've got to remove the distractions. We've got these thorns that represent distractions. And in the context of this, this, is, this these are weeds. Hey, do you have to, do you have to grow weeds? You have to plant weeds. No, weeds are natural to soil. 
Fruitful plants are not natural to soil. In order to grow fruitful plants, you've got to tend that soil and remove the weeds. All right? And so we naturally have distractions in our life. And so the soil's got to be softened. Okay? But nobody plants both weeds and seeds and expects a thriving garden. Okay? You don't have a garden that is fruitful, but it's filled with weeds as well. And so the gospel is foreign to soil. And so there's got to be an intentionality. You've got to remove the distractions. And so these thorns are said to choke these seeds. And he says they yield no fruit. You can always tell because there are some worldly people that try to look spiritual. And they try to add spirituality to their worldliness. But over time, what gets revealed? There's no fruit. There's no fruit. You have to remove the distractions. No one can serve two masters. And now we've got one last kind of soil. Look at verse 8. He says, Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. This is good soil. What makes it good? It's soft. It's not hard like the soil on the road there. It's not shallow. It's deep, unlike the rocky ground. It's not you know, weed infested. It's not thorn infested. It's clean. There's no, nothing in there. And he says it's fruitful. The seed goes down and it just explodes. You've got a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold reproduction of this seed. I've read a good crop would be tenfold. This goes way beyond all the rational expectations. And Jesus explains what all of this is in verse 23. He says, as for what is sown on good soil, this is the one who's, uh, who hears the word and understands it. He understands it. Meaning, number four in your notes, the good soil represents an authentic heart. You could also say a receptive heart. You could say a softened heart. He understands the word. You say, well, the last two guys understood the word too. Different. They had an intellectual understanding. This is not the same. Uh, This is not pure data that is embraced intellectually. In Mark's telling of this parable, the word used there is the Greek word paradekomai, which means He accepted it. He embraced it. Luke uses the word katecho, which means he holds on to it. Man, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are holding on to him for dear life. You have embraced it. You are clinging to it. Your hopes are pinned on that. Back in the 1800s, there was a French daredevil by the name of Charles Blondin, and he was a tightrope walker. He was, uh, uh, he was an acrobat, and he, he would go to Niagara Falls, and he'd stretch a tightrope across that gorge, and this idiot would walk across. And crowds would come out. There was no internet, no TV, nothing like that. So they, they would seek out entertainment like this, and they would gather in mass, and they would, they would, they would cheer him on. And he was a showman, and he would say, Do you believe that I can walk across this tightrope. And they would say, yes, we believe it. And so he would do it. He would go down and he would come back with his little pole, you know. And he would say, now, do you believe 
that I can ride a unicycle across the falls. And they would shout, yes, we believe. And he would do it. He'd come down and back. And then he said, do you believe that I can balance a wheelbarrow all the way across? And they would scream and shout their affirmation that they indeed believed that he could. And he did. And then he said, now do you believe that I can carry that wheelbarrow with a man sitting in it across the falls? And they said, yes, we believe. And he said, wonderful, may I have a volunteer? <laughs> Nothing, right? They didn't have that kind of faith. But that's what real faith is. It's not the mere acceptance of facts it's not uh, belief in the uh, possibility of something you say i believe jesus is the son of god what does james say he says you believe that there's one god good even the demons believe that you believe jesus is the son of god that's great you got the faith of demons congratulations what what kind of faith are we talking about this faith says i'm gonna get in the wheelbarrow I'm going to put myself in the palm of an almighty God. I'm going to rest in what he has done. I am pinning my life, my eternity, on the hope of Jesus Christ. I am trusting him with everything I've got. And for the one who truly does that, the way that you know that that's an authentic heart, Jesus goes on, he says, he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, in another 30. You know what this means? This means a true believer who has authentic faith will produce spiritual fruit. Jesus says in John 15, 7 and 8, If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish. It will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How will people know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that your faith is real? There's going to be fruit in your life. What does it look like? According to Paul, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Only a true believer who is abiding in the Spirit that is indwelling him manifests such fruit. And that is a testimony to the world. They will know you by that fruit. So what's your application here? Well, if you're an unbeliever, not much. Except Except to ask the following question, as in your notes, what kind of soil am I? What kind of soil am I? Am I the hard soil? If you recognize that, there's still hope. There's still hope. You can soften your heart to receive the gospel, to, to let that seed be planted and take root in you. Are you the shallow soil? Are you someone who has heard the gospel? Maybe you've gotten emotional about it. But is, is there more to your faith? Are you the weed-ridden, thorn-infested soil? Are there distractions in your life that's keeping the word from penetrating your heart, that is keeping you from bearing fruit? If, if you're any of those, you can ask God to plow your heart right now to make it what it needs to be so that he can do his work in you. And if you are a believer who has received the gospel, you can ask a couple of questions. First, in your notes, how can I sow this seed right now? 
because our time is short. This is a kingdom story. This is a parable about something that is coming. And, and, and by the time our time on earth is done, we don't get to do the job that we're here to do anymore. So we gotta be, we got to be busy. How can I sow the seed? Who is in my life that needs to hear this message? Who is in my life where I need to sow that seed today? And then how can I maintain fruitfulness in my life? Not, not any of us uh, are fruitful to the maximum each and every day. There are days where we don't produce as much fruit. We need to submit to the spirit that has taken root in our heart each and every day. Would you bow with me right now? I want every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're in this room today and you're thinking to yourself, you know, Pastor Scott, I'm, I'm one of these people. I, I, I'm someone who has heard the gospel over and over. And, and it's never taken root in my heart. It's never penetrated to the point where I know that Jesus Christ lives in me. Maybe you say, you know, I, I've responded to the gospel in emotional ways. I've, I've cried. I've shouted. But that's all it is. There's nothing tangible. There's nothing real there. Man, I'm ready for that to change. Maybe you're somebody who says, you know, I know the gospel, but there's just too many things in my life I'm unwilling to give up in order to really follow Jesus Christ. I got too many masters. But today's the day I want to follow the master. If, if you can say that any of those describe you, I want you to make a decision right now. I want to give you this opportunity. You can choose to follow Christ. You can let the seed of the gospel penetrate your heart, take root, and begin to bloom in your life. And if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, I'm going to pray right now, and I would like to invite you to pray along with me. Now, it's not going to be these very words that save you. Praying a prayer doesn't save you. It's this, it's this decision. It's the turning over of your life. Because this is the moment where you say, I'm getting in the wheelbarrow. And I am trusting my life to Jesus Christ. Pray with me right now. If, if that's you, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I recognize that I'm a sinner. And I recognize that there is nothing that I can do or have ever done that could earn your favor. But I understand the gospel is this, that Jesus died for my sin. He paid the price that I could not. And he offers salvation as a free gift, which I now receive. And I am trusting in him for my eternity. My life is his. My life is yours, Lord. And Lord, I, I, I want to get in that wheelbarrow that is filled with soil that you are going to plant and grow fruit. I want to produce fruit in my life for you. I want to follow you. In Jesus' name. Now every head remains bowed at this moment.
Every eye is still closed. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today and you meant that, would you just do me a favor? Would you just slip up your hand right now? Amen. Amen. I see hands all over this room. All over this room. All right, everybody look up my way. Okay. Our prayer team is going to be right up here. Every member of our prayer team uh, at this service is here. The decision that you just made, and there were several, there were several who trusted Christ in this last moment. Any decision worth making is worth telling somebody about. Okay, was it real? If it was real, I'm going to ask you to come down here. And I want you to talk to one of the people at the front of the stage. I'll be down here too, okay? Because you have a journey to begin And we want to help you on that journey so that you know how to produce fruit for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Is God's word good?